I appreciate Becky sharing her story. That's a very vulnerable thing to tell your story in front of a bunch of people, and I appreciate that. Becky's a beautiful woman, has a beautiful heart. Um, and it's important, I think, to tell those stories because what typically happens is you walk into a church, especially if you're kind of new, you look around and you think, oh, everybody's got it together and everybody's life is perfect. And that's, I mean, kind of Satan does that to us. Like, this is what you're like. And the truth of the matter is everyone around you is completely broken and messed up and screwed up. We've got problems and things I've had to walk through. And, and so uh, I just want you to know you're the most beautiful, screwed up bunch of people I've ever seen. And so I just wanted to just say that out loud to you. We uh, are going to continue our conversations. Now, it's going to be a, this is really a two-weeker. I'm going to just, I'm going to spend one week and then we'll pick it up for next week. And so that's kind of important to say up front that I've got a lot more to say than what you'll hear uh, by the end of the morning. But last week we began by just celebrating, we've existed as a Livingstones church for 10 years. So we had our big 10th birthday party last week. We had more cake last week than we did this week. So I apologize for that. And, uh, it's interesting, these are the markers in life that allow you to just kind of reflect. And so I have to admit, for me personally, it's been kind of a very reflective season for me lately is uh, I mentioned we'd gone through pictures, like, I mean, thousands of pictures. And just as you're looking at 10 years of time and all the things that we've done, it's really remarkable to me in regards to all the things that we've accomplished as a church over the last 10 years. And so now that we've reached this 10-year mark, it allows us to take a moment to ask questions about, so where are we going next? Like, What's our trajectory? What's our vision? What, where are we headed in terms of those sorts of issues? Because I recognize in terms of church life, every church has a life cycle, every one of them, and we, we will be no exception. Churches usually begin, there's a birth, there's a brand new church, it usually has a season of growth, and then it kind of plateaus, and it goes to the other side, you start to see some decline until it eventually ends in death. This is what every church will experience, and I'm hoping it will be centuries and centuries from now, but ours will be no exception. Right? It's like every church you read about in the New Testament, they no longer exist. And the reason why is because they've all been through that life cycle, including at the end, death. And I recognize uh, I got here 19 years ago was when I showed up here at this church. And at the time, it was a church in decline. We'd already reached our plateau. We were headed into decline. And it was a slow decline. We could have lasted for decades, I'm sure, with no, no problem. But it was kind of a slow decline. And in the process, God kind of intervened and spoke in and gave us as a church the opportunity for rebirth. And so that's what we celebrated on Sunday, the 10th anniversary, so to speak, of that rebirth and growth for us as a church. But now that we've kind of have had 10 years of growth and looks like we're reaching kind of that plateau stage, it's time for us to ask questions in regards to where do we go from here. And then I recognize everything is on the table. And like just for me personally, in terms of reflection, even in leadership, as I look back, you know, I got here when I was just 25 years old, right? So three years ago, and I'm 28. And that's a, I was a lot, had a whole lot more hair than I got now. And I just named the hair as they jumped out of my head for whoever I thought in the church caused it. So there's Bob. You know, that's kind of what, and so, and so you kind of take, took 10 years to just kind of even establish leadership to kind of figure out where you're at as a leader. And now that uh, for the last 10 years at the Livingstones Church have led largely from the front. And I recognize, yeah, for the next 10 years here, uh, Lord willing, uh, I'll have to figure out how, to, how do I lead from the middle. And then, Lord willing, if I get another 10 years here, uh, like my dream is really I would love to spend my entire pastoral career in this one church, which is almost unheard of, like very rare, but my dream is just uh, spend my entire life serving this church, and then when I die, they'll, uh, I've asked the elders to put me in plexiglass in the lobby so you could just see me every week, even though I've already, you know, they've not approved that yet, but we're working on it, and I think it's going to be all right. And so you kind of figure out how do you, in the last 10 years, then lead from behind, 
from the back, and then faithfully hand a baton off to another generation of leaders to take the Living Stones Church to places that I was not even capable of taking it to, sort of the trajectory for me personally. But when I think about us even as a church, when I got here, we were largely an inward, unhealthy, smaller church. And we ignored our community, and our community largely ignored us. That was just the reality. In fact, I would talk to people. I would meet them like they'd live on Woodside Street, which is just like two blocks away. And I would just meet them and talk about, you know, oh, I'm the preacher at the church there, a couple blocks away from you on Don Moyer. Like, there's a church there? Like, yeah, we've been there since 1956. And so, and like, ah. Oh, oh, I thought that was an armory, or I thought that was a school, or they had no idea that we were a church. I thought, well, that doesn't, that's not good for business, I don't think, in the neighborhood. And so what we'll recognize is if you largely ignore your neighborhood community, they will largely ignore you. And we knew you couldn't just like open up the doors one day and say, we're here, we're open for business, and like the, the neighborhood would flock in. That's just not how it works. You had to commit yourself to figuring out how do we serve this neighborhood and community and make an impact and make a difference. And that's what we knew God had called us to, that, listen, we are not on a major thoroughfare. We are not on a bypass. We're not like, like, you do not drive down Donmore unless you live kind of around Donmore. You're trying to get here. We are at 718 East Donmore Avenue. We are in the middle of homes and apartment complexes and schools and a neighborhood. And we decided we were going to stay and figure out how do we make an impact where we're at. And what we decided to do is we wanted to pursue relationships in our neighborhood, Meaning that nobody is a project. Like students at Monroe School, they are not our project. If you live in Miami Hills, you are not a project of the Living Stones Church. If you, if you live on Fairview, you're not like what we wondered was, how do you enter into real relationships? And we figured the Spirit of God would establish that for us, but relationship goes both ways, right? Projects do, do not. And we're not, in, we're not interested in that. I'm not saying we do that well all the time, just in terms of our heart, that's what we desire. And we commit ourselves to three major things as a church. So I look back, back on the last 10 years. What I noticed, man, we spent a lot of time praying. Prayer was one of the major things for us as a church that we wanted to engage in. So I don't know if some of you might even be able to go back to, remember when we as a church prayed for 40 straight days, anyone here for that? A handful of you. We were much smaller at the time, and we built a room, a prayer room, down at the very end of the hallway. It's one of the kids' rooms now. And we just challenged the church to, could you take just one hour and show up to the prayer room and pray for an hour about our neighborhood, our community, the schools around us, this vision, all those sorts of things. And because of our size, I thought, you know, we might not get like a two in the morning, three in the morning time slot. It's not like God's going to go, well, I can't bless you because you, you were missing an hour. But what was amazing was, um, as, a, as a church, we prayed every hour for 24 hours a day for 40 straight days. And when I think about that, and now I look around this room... I'm just convinced, you probably don't know this, but many of you are here today, I think, because of those prayers. And when I think about times in terms of intercessory prayer ministry praying for this church, and when I think about leadership meetings and time in prayer and prayer in the staff, even just for me personally, just personal time of prayer, I'm just struck by oh, what God has done and what He has established just through those prayers. The second thing we commit ourselves to is just service. you got to serve. One, because Jesus calls us to it. Like Jesus himself will speak about himself. He says, listen, I came not to be served, but to serve. So if you're going to faithfully reflect Jesus, you have to serve. And this is important to us as a church. And here's the biggest thing for us. You have to serve in a way that has absolutely no strings attached to it. Because people can tell when you're serving them, but ultimately you have an ulterior motive. Even if your motive is church growth, that is an ulterior motive. 
And so how do we continually engage the neighborhood and serve them in a way that, like, you don't ever, if you don't ever step in foot to this church, it doesn't matter. We still will serve because it's the way of Jesus. And sometimes you can pick that up very subtly in terms of sometimes what churches do. And so we have served, as I look back, over 10 years here in all sorts of ways, small ways and big ways, from carnation giveaways, which we just did last Saturday, groceries at Miami Hills, school supplies at Monroe School. We did a shoe event. We did one of the larger things. We did an eight-week day camp called Recess here for three summers in a row. It required an enormous amount of energy and resources and, and motivation, and it was incredible. For eight weeks, we had kids from Monroe School coming here during the summers for a day camp. It was just fantastic. We've done after-school programming called Explosion. We've done, we got gifts for uh, Christmas for all the kids at Monroe. We've done Leaf Ninjas, ballpark cleanups, neighborhood cleanups. I mean, there is a long, long list of things that this church has done over the last 10 years just to serve. And I'm very proud of that. And when I think back to those, uh, those uh, moving out in service, what I recognize is it does two things for us. One, it demonstrates to the neighborhood that you care. And that's what you have to do if you at least have in your history that you've ignored them for a long time. So you can't just once or twice, no, this is who we are. We continually serve because it looks like Jesus. And the second thing is when we serve like that, what we receive from the community is favor. What happens is we have favor when our neighborhood and community says to themselves, oh, you're that church that you, you bless Monroe by doing these sorts of things. Oh, uh, my mom had her leaves raked by you one fall. That's favor, and that is worth more to us than gold, the favor of a community. That's why service is so important for us. So even if a guy lives on Fairview Avenue here, never steps foot in here, if he hears the name Livingstone's Church, what we want for him to go is, oh, yeah, that church is, you guys do stuff all over our neighborhood and community and try to be a help and a blessing. That's what you want for people to have in regards to their mind. And not only do we pray and we serve, but the third thing is we just commit ourselves to invitation. Like we just, just invite people either into relationship with the church or with Jesus himself. And so we've done all sorts of things. Some of you are here because you got a postcard in the mail announcing maybe a message series we were doing and that was of interest to you. Or or like most people, you just put it somewhere in your house and just kind of lodges in your mind that huh, maybe I wouldn't mind going to that church someday. And then you finally acted on it at some point. Or maybe it was through a vacation Bible school. Or maybe you saw a billboard. We used to have a couple billboards uh, around. If you're in student ministries, maybe you came here because of the Underground Cafe, which used to be uh, on the weekends, maybe once or twice a month. There's, we'd get six or seven different bands in this room and a bunch of teenagers, and I never showed up because I was a nervous wreck. But I mean, it was a great thing. Or maybe it was through Young Life, or maybe it's just through individual invitation, and, or maybe you just shared on Facebook something at the Livingstones Church, which i got to tell you, listen to me, uh, when you share things from the Livingstones Church, that is invaluable to us in regards to invitation. In fact, I think probably more effective than sending out 10,000 postcards to the south side of South Bend, when your own friendship network kind of sees that you're proud of something, or you see something, or you're sharing something. So let me encourage you, don't be afraid to hit that share button. That's very helpful to us in regards to invitation. And through those things, we've seen great growth and impact here on the south side of South Bend, but I'm convinced oftentimes this is the case. What got us here might not be what gets us where we need to be in the next 10 years. Giveaways are great, but if their intent is to bring about awareness and favor, what I'm suggesting is we might have already received that. And if that's the case, then it will have diminishing returns, and we need to think through what's a new strategy in regards to service. 
or postcards to every home on the south side might bring about some awareness and occasional response, but as we look forward to the next 10 years, maybe there are more effective ways for us in terms of invitation. And so as a church, we're always thinking about capacity is an issue for us. Like we're always trying to think through, and there's lots of levels of capacity that it's not unique to Livingstone's church. Every church faces it. One is the capacity of vision, meaning does your vision have the capacity for growth? Let me illustrate it by the business world, if I might, for a moment. Let's say you had this great idea one night. You woke up, you thought, you know what? I'm going to start a business. It's going to be a dog-walking business, and I'm going to go after brown-eyed, left-handed retirees to walk their dogs. Right? That's your vision. Like You're totally sold. So you do all of your marketing to left-handed people, the brown eyes who are retired. And, and so by way of vision for your business, how is it going to go? Probably not great. Will you get some business? Maybe. But if you decide to open up a business to walk dogs, but you go after young professionals that have to work long hours at work and cannot take their dogs for a walk, and you don't care whether they're left-handed or right-handed or what color their eyes are, you've got a much greater vision, correct? Right? Same thing in churches. Sometimes by just way of vision, there is a capacity in regards to growth just simply by your vision. And so we ask those questions. In terms of our vision, are we at capacity? And since there's 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend, and the zip codes of 46613, 46614, about 11,800 children who are not yet back at LSC kids, we still have some capacity, right? At least by way of vision. The second is your missional capacity, right? Your missional capacity. And that is, you take a look at your mission field. What has God called you to? And that will oftentimes determine capacity. For example, if we lived, and right now we're in the metroplex of Dallas, Texas, that's a massive mission field, right? We're talking millions and millions and millions of people who live in that large metroplex. they got great barbecue in Tex-Mex. But I mean, a large amount of people who live there. And a church our size is just a, just a drop in that ocean. Just a drop, Right? But if your mission field was Bald Knob, Arkansas, which is a true city of 2,800 people, a church our size, man, that's like, wow, that's amazing, and we'd be reaching our missional capacity. Again, I think when we look at what God has called us to by way of mission, we still have capacity. The third thing is leadership capacity. And what I mean by that is every church has within it sort of a leadership team and a pastor and a staff, and they have a certain capacity. They just do. God has assigned them certain gifts and not others, assigned them certain abilities and not others, and there are pastors and staffs of churches who God has blessed them with the gift to lead a church of 100. That's their capacity, and they're great at it. Others, he's given the gift to lead a church of 250. Others, 500. Others, 1,000, and some tens of thousands. And so it's for us always reflecting on, even me personally, in regards to, is this what God has gifted me? Has he gifted me to something more as a, as a staff, as an elder body, as a leadership team? Like, what is our capacity in regards to leadership? And so you're measuring that. And the last one I want to say to you out loud is spatial capacity is the last one. And this is one that we find affects us the most. Again... We are a church in the middle of a neighborhood. We are on Don Moyer Avenue, not on the bypass. We're in the middle of homes. We do not have a large plot of land, even like the White House that looks like it's on our property, right over here. Have you seen that when you pulled in? That's not even ours. Like, we don't even have that White House, okay? So we have, right, we're just, we have, when you came to church this morning, you drove in a one-entry exit driveway. That's what you did, right? Listen to me, no architect in their right mind in 2016 would ever design a public space that has one entry exit point. They just wouldn't, right? Those are limitations of our space. When you walked into this room, how many doors did you walk through? Yeah, there's just one, like no architect in their right mind in 2016 would design a public building that has one entry exit point like that, right? 
when you saw, <laughs> when you walked up to the porch, you looked over to your, to your, your left, and you saw that single door, did you see the single door, did you walk through there? That's like our main door coming in, <laughs> like, it's ridiculous, right? That's the way it is. We have, we have capacity issues in regards to, we only have a certain number of parking spots, we only have one men's bathroom, and really, in my mind, only one functional urinal because they're too close together. You've seen our children's spaces. We only have 308 tan chairs. You've seen our gathering spaces. We call it a lobby, but it's really a glorified hallway. And if you even get into the hallway, you know if you're a mother with a car carrier for your child, good luck getting around somebody in the hallway because it's so near. Nobody in their right mind would build space like this today. It might have been great in 1956, but it doesn't work too well in 2016. And in spite of that, God has been good to us. And we've done great things in spite of all of those limitations. And so we've kind of moved past those spatial capacities by doing multiple services, but even that has a capacity. And as we think about the next 10 years, we have to calculate and measure those issues of capacity. And by the way, the, la- the fourth week of this series, so in, in, two more, in three more weeks, two more weeks, I want to talk specifically about the spatial capacity issue and where we're headed. But I'm convinced of, still today, just as I was 10 years ago, that God has called us in the middle of this neighborhood to make an impact on the south side of South Bend. That at the very least... If we were to die as a church, if we were to cease to exist, it would be felt by our community that our neighborhood would, in fact, be affected by it, which that's what we want individually, right? Like, at our death, we don't want people to go, who? (laughs) Or, oh, doesn't matter to me, right? Like, when I die, I want people to be devastated and not get over it for months. Like, just for months, you're just devastated. And you sort of want that same effect as a church. If we were to die as a church, that our neighborhood wouldn't just go right on and go, ah, whatever, who really cared, who really, like, no, you want to go, That's tragic for us. Like, that is not a good thing for the south side of South Bend, for the Livingstones Church to not be around anymore. We want our absence to be felt. But far more than just someone noticing that we died, what we dream about is that we have radically changed the culture of the south side by our very existence. That years from now, even if it's decades from now, history would record that things were different on this side of town in part because of the Livingstones Church. Rates of addiction are affected because of this church. Crime rates are affected by this church. Divorce rates are changed because of this church. Even down to I-step test scores, resources for schools, restoration of meaning and purpose for individuals, jobs for those who've been unemployable, issues of justice and peace are the norm, and we finally get a good Italian restaurant. That's what we dream about here on the south side. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Actually, we got a couple now, don't we? Just throw the macros over here in Sam's Kitchen on Ireland. Let's put a plug in. I'm not getting anything back for that. I just want you to know. <laughs> we want to be faithful stewards of the kingdom of God here on the south side of South Bend. And so I've been thinking a lot lately in regards to how do you impact the south side of South Bend? Like for the next 10 years. Like I'm proud of what we've done over the last 10, but as we move forward, what does that look like? And what I recognize is it always starts with an issue of identity. This is where you have to start. So how do we think about ourselves as a church? Because... What we think about our being, our identity, will be the outcome that will be naturally will be what we do. And that do must be informed by our values. And that keeps us from being caught in the mercy and the whim of some other kind of hardly defined issue of who Jesus is and what he wants for us and those sorts of things. Anyhow, I was reading through Acts and I got to a passage in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read it for you. And there was one phrase in here that described the disciples in the book of Acts that when I read it I thought... That I like. 
that might have legs to it in regards to the next 10 years. It's out of Acts 17. It begins in verse 1. It says this, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they went ahead they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting this. This is this. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. If you're reading the English Standard Version, it'll say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, it says, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the other post, others post bond and let them go. But what I want you to, to listen to and to hear in this is this phrase, the troublemakers who turn the world upside down. The troublemakers who turned the world upside down. Like when I think about the next 10 years, you know what I kind of would like for the Livingstones Church to be? Troublemakers. <laughs> and not just for picking a fight. Don't hear me say that. But troublemakers for the kingdom of God that truly turns the world upside down. So much so that those who do not belong to the kingdom of God don't know quite what to do with us. And in the end, might be just upset and call us a bunch of troublemakers. And in it, here's what I recognize. The church always has a temptation to be on the sidelines. And I think it's sometimes because of our own theology. Meaning, oftentimes, we so emphasize that Jesus is great because he's forgiven us of our sins and he's giving us eternal life, meaning when we die, we get to go to heaven. And you can hear that over and over again as a church, right? Have Jesus forgive you of your sins so that when you die, you get to go to heaven, right? Have Jesus forgive your sins. Listen, I'm not even opposed to those concepts, but if you actually read the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus, do you know what he almost never talks about? Having your sins forgiven so that when you die, you get to go to heaven. What he talks about more than anything else is the kingdom of God. Now, before your mind goes, oh, the kingdom of God in heaven, no, no, the kingdom of God that's broken in here on the earth. And when I think about a church who's, when you summarize their practice of theology and thought, if it's truly about, if Jesus, Christianity, discipleship is all about a group of people who have their sins forgiven, so when they die, they can go to heaven, that will affect what we do then as a church. So if I were just to ask, what is the mission of a group of people who have been forgiven of their sins and look forward to life after death? Like, what do they do together? Have potlucks, I guess, and wait till death. Which more potlucks will bring that on because of all the fried chicken? If you got a collection of those people together, call them collectively a church, what do you think their mission as a church would be? And, and I think, well, I guess get people to accept Jesus as their Savior to forgive them of their sins. Or maybe you kind of move into those revival efforts to confront non-Christians with their sinfulness and hopefully their need for a Savior. And then otherwise, you just kind of hold on until death 
so you can spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. And sometimes that, you hear that reflected in our songs and language and emphasis. But when you think about it, so then what happens around us, like on the face of the earth? The answer, it seems to me, practically out of that theology is what happens on the earth is of a very little consequence. It just doesn't really matter. And sometimes that is even explicitly stated in our teachings about the end times in the last days. And so if you think, well, the earth is just going to burn up anyhow, so what difference does it make what happens on the earth? Or even worse, you have an end time view that requires a greater tribulation so the rapture could take place. And so some of you might be familiar with what I'm talking about. If others don't, don't worry about it. We're moving on. But what I would say is this is a complete misreading of Scripture and a dispensational interpretation that has disastrous consequences for our care of the earth. And because our focus is only on the very personal individual narratives of our own salvation, we have lost sight of Jesus' narrative of living out the kingdom of God here on earth, right now. And if we commit ourselves to that, we'll be troublemakers who turn the world upside down. And so in it, I recognize this goes back to an issue of who we are as disciples, And I'm asking us for a moment to not think exclusively in terms that are otherworldly of, well, we had our sins forgiven, so now we get to go to heaven when we die. Because I think the end result of that for the here and now is what I would call me church. It's just a radical, self-centered community that has as its greatest aim personal fulfillment. I just think that's the logical consequence of that. And sometimes you can hear it. Well, we'll say things like, oh, I really like this church because of our children's ministry. It's just fantastic. My kids love it. When they come out, they had a blast. They love it. They want to come back next week. Or you say things like, oh, I really like this church because of the worship songs. Man, the band that just really connects to me. Like when they, I just, it's powerful to me. Or I really like this church because the pastor could be funny. He's like a clown at times. I mean, right? Or I like this church because I can wear my jeans and I can dress informally. Or I really like this church because you can fill in the blank. Listen, I'm not opposed to any of those things. Do you hear me? Like, I'm not opposed to any of those things. But the trap that the church could get in is we are not dispensers of religious goods and services for consumption. He's given us a greater mission that requires us to step out of meat church of what we might like or not like and recognize he's called us to something bigger, to be troublemakers that turn the world upside down. And so let me tell you what I think will make the biggest impact on the south side of South Bend. It's not, listen, let me give you some knots. This was not, we will not make an impact on the south side of Bend by, by one being the busiest church. You know what I mean by that? Like you open up the bulletin, like, man, they got a lot of stuff going on here. And we do. In fact, we've already committed in 2016, we want to do a 10 for 10 to celebrate 10 years of Livingstone's Church. The first one is a worship night we're kicking off on March 5th. You should be here. And so we'll have lots of activity. But listen, we could be scheduled on the calendar to death, and that doesn't mean you'll change anybody's life who lives on Oakside or Victoria or Ewing or Fox or Donald. Being the busiest church will not be for us the key to impacting the South Side. Number two, I don't think even being the church that has the best show in town will really impact the south side of the You know what I mean by that, right? I'm using kind of crass language. I don't mean this is a big show, but you get what I mean, right? I don't want us to be the boring church, but I recognize some churches are more entertaining than others, right? And kind of want to be in a church that's more entertaining than others. And I, I, listen, I don't think we're even capable of producing a show that's good enough to draw people who truly have no interest in Jesus. I don't think that'll be it. Our show lacks the ability to truly lead people who don't believe or know Jesus into a commitment to follow Jesus, at least effectively. That cannot be our biggest aim. Now, boring isn't a value either, 
But I think we should admit that when that happens, it typically is just drawing from a pool of already professed Christians who are looking for a church that's more entertaining than others. I would also say, being a church that has the most charismatic and good-looking leader will not do it, which you have, right? (laughs) Just, I don't know how you top that. I promise you, my appeal as a pastor, which isn't for everybody, (laughs) I'm like an acquired taste, (laughs) for every, I'm here because of his style is equally matched by somebody who never walked back in the place again because of my style. It doesn't hurt to have a charismatic leader, I guess. I guess that's to be preferred the opposite, but do not forget what Paul says in regards to what service in the kingdom of God looks like. It means you suffer like Jesus. That's the real qualifications. I also don't think the key for us impacting the south side will be a church that has the slickest branding and logo. Have you ever been to churches like that? Now, as a pastor, this is my world, so it might affect me differently than you, but have you ever walked into a church and said you walked in and you're like, wow, like everything was amazing, like all the spaces were amazing, everything looked slick, and their logos and branding and every environment you went into was like, this is impressive. I mean, just amazing. Like pastors do that all the time when they go to church. Now, listen, I want to have... Wow experiences here. I'd love to have compelling messages here and irresistible environments here. But I mentioned the two urinals we had, right? Okay. I'm telling you this, we can look as a church really slick, but I'm not really sure that's going to do much in terms of making an impact on the south side. People might show up, be impressed, tell their friends they were impressed, but ultimately it will leave people in the exact same place where they step foot in the door. And finally, I don't think this will be it. I don't think a church that's riding the wave of popularity will work for us. And churches have waves of popularity. Did you know that? And like, we just name churches in our community. Like, they have waves of popularity. In fact, when I was in college, I went to a college uh, town, and they had churches all over as a Christian college. And uh, when I first got there, all the college kids, we went to the College Church of Christ. You know why? Mike Cope was preaching there, and Mike Cope was amazing. Like, he was amazing. But then, the downtown Church of Christ started what they called a contemporary service in their gymnasium, and all the college kids went there. Well, the West Side Church of Christ, they started in it. You see what same happens? And the same thing can happen in our community. We can all ride the wave, so to speak. GCC can have their turn. The Vineyard can have their turn. Epic, Living Stone, Southgate, River Valley, Riverside, all fantastic churches. But if we're honest, these waves of popularity are really probably confined to the already Christian community. That will not impact the South Side of South Bend. And so how do we impact the South Side? And in it, I would say, we have to be troublemakers troublemakers for the kingdom of God. And we get this from Jesus, don't we? Like just looking at Jesus, this is our model. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that he is the head of the body, the church, which means we don't really, we're not even free to decide for ourselves what we want to do. We have to follow him because he's the boss man. He's the head. He's the one who's in charge of the church, the body. And so when we look at the ministry of Jesus, what we recognize is his most dominant and consistent message throughout the gospels is the message of the kingdom of God. And before you go to heaven as your metaphor, no, I mean the kingdom of God that's broken here on the earth. Jesus went around preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God. And then he sent out his disciples to preach and demonstrate the kingdom of God, saying it is breaking in here and now. What God wants on earth is now happening. His message was not, pray this prayer so that you can have your sins forgiven, and then let's all hope that when you die you make it to heaven. The message is right here, right now, God's kingdom is breaking in on the earth, and it is expanding, which for us should be, yay, God's kingdom is expanding, except for when God's kingdom expands, you know what happens? It comes into collision with all other kingdoms. 
And when that happens, there's trouble. God's kingdom is ultimately violent. Not in its application and methodology, but always in its consequence. Because as the kingdom of God expands, it unseats all other kingdoms. It denies to all other kingdoms their claims of power and domination and truth and reality. The narrative of the kingdom of God trumps and reveals all other narratives to be a lie. And that's why when Paul talks about the expanding nature of the kingdom of God, he will often use the language and the metaphor of spiritual warfare. The powers and principalities, the armor of God, all these things because he recognizes when the kingdom of God expands, it comes into collision with all other kingdoms. It will threaten what is. The ones that have advanced and made by humans, those powers and principalities that are behind them. Did you know all around, I mean, listen, even all around us, there are governmental kingdoms. Local kingdoms, state kingdoms, national kingdoms. Did you know all around us there are economic kingdoms? and societal kingdoms, kingdoms that were set up by the majority and the powerful and the strong for themselves that many are shut out of altogether. Did you know that there are religious kingdoms all around us that pretend to have the final say in what is right interpretation and who gets in and who doesn't get in? And when the kingdom of God expands, it confronts all of those kingdoms with the life and message of Jesus. And when that happens, it undoes everything and it causes trouble. Now listen to me. This is what got Jesus killed. Jesus did not get crucified because he was a nice guy. Jesus was not crucified because he tolerated and loved everybody. The reason why Jesus was crucified was because the powers that be completely understood that his message was a threat to them. Politically, socially, economically, if Jesus' teachings take hold in this group of people, then the things that are will no longer be, and an alternative kingdom will be established, and that is why they crucified him. And when Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the good news, listen, they all did not face persecution and death because they were such nice guys who tolerated just loved everybody, but because they were faithful to the message that Jesus is king. And his kingdom reigns here and now. And when it shows up and expands, it means this. It was a threat to everybody. That's why in Thessalonica, they dragged them to the center of the city and a riot broke out. And they said, they're troublemakers who are turning the world upside down. And this should discourage in us any romantic view of the kingdom expanding as just a nice social project to make the world better. Listen, the United Way can do that. Other nonprofit or civic organizations can do that. When Jesus sends us out, it's different. And there's huge implications. That's, in my mind, what will make an impact. When we commit ourselves to the message of Jesus and the kingdom of God and the expansion of that kingdom in the neighborhoods around us, that what God wants to happen happens, then we'll be troublemakers who turn the world upside down. And I want to talk more next week about what all that looks like. So, but for now, just hear me say, the key is in being faithful ambassadors of the kingdom, to be people of the kingdom, and because of that, troublemakers for all other kingdoms. And so, listen, I love the leaf ninja thing. Like, it's cool. I I really like, I mean, it gives us favor, but I don't think raking leaves in our neighborhood is probably going to make a huge impact. It's just not. And I love as a church, when we gather together, we provide school supplies for Monroe School. Isn't that a great thing? That's a great thing. But you know what I think would make a bigger impact at Monroe School? When we become advocates of justice and peace and truth, and we have a voice to the school board that says, now listen, 
You cannot skim the cream of the crop off of your neighborhood schools, send them to another school, and then under-resource the one that's in your neighborhood, and it'd be okay. That's an entirely different thing. See, that will probably have some pushback. That might get you in some trouble. But it's right, because what God wants to happen here on earth actually happens here on earth because of a group of people at 718 East Dumber Avenue who ensured that it took place. It's one thing to hand out groceries at Miami Hills, which is a great thing. It's another thing to recognize, did you know that people who live in Miami Hills are victims of all sorts of systemic injustices? I mean, from just mold and stuff like that to even, they don't even have individual control of their own electricity, which means some of them have like a bill for $20 and some of them in the month have a bill for $200 and they have no control over that and so their electricity gets shut off. I don't know if it's the landlord's fault, AEP's fault, the housing authority's fault, but when there's a church that's right around the corner that begins to advocate for them in terms of justice, that's when you make an impact on the south side of South Bend. So we'll talk more about these things next week, but just for now, kind of hang on to that. Oh, let's be troublemakers on the south side of South Bend for the glory of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand again. Let's pray. God, we pray right now for uh, vision. As a lot of this is talk, what we need is real opportunities to figure out what have you given us and what resources have you blessed us with that we can go out and make a real difference and an impact on those that we know you're crazy in love with. We might stand up for things that are full of truth and justice and peace. And we see people be able to confess your son as their Lord and their king. We pray, as your son taught us, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here on the south side of South Bend as it is in heaven. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This last song that we're going to sing uh, has a lot of really great language in it about um, some of the things that 